for the reading of God's Word. If you're on live stream, I would ask if you're on live stream to stand at this time. If you, have, if you need a Bible, you can get one in the back. If you have a cell phone on, please turn it off so that the Word can go out and go out without distraction. If you park downstairs or at 375 Longwood, please get a parking token before you go out. And we have a brand new offering box in the back constructed by a young man in our church. You know, the older you grow, the older you are, the older ages you are, you call young. I'm not sure this person would call himself young anymore, but he's young to me. And so I greatly appreciate that. It was Steve Drake. Why don't we just all clap for Steve Drake, the new offering box. You can also, um, you can also manage your giving online. Okay, well, why don't we pray at this time? Am I forgetting anything? Camperia, youth, youth, youth. We are going up to Camperia in, in uh, the second or third February uh, w- weekend in February, the third weekend in February, and that's always an exciting time. Uh, we have supported Camperia for many years. They, while um, around the country, many camps and this kind of stuff start watering down the Word of God over time. Not them. They put it really direct and uh, make it really relevant for, for the kids. And we appreciate Camp Rhea. Sign up for that. Is in the back. Okay. So we are in the book of Mark, chapter 3, verse 7. We will begin with. It says this, But Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea, And a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they heard how many things that Jesus was doing, they came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. And then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that, that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. And I just, Lord, I... Just think of the song that my brother sang before uh, at the outset of the worship time. Oh, Lord. 
Oh God, that every man, woman, and child in here would have that same heart of that line in that worship song, giving up everything to know you. And Father, we are so blind that we don't think it's worth it. <laughs> we don't think it's worth it giving up everything to know you. Lord, would you reveal your heart? Would you reveal your heart to us? That we could say that and sing that, not just because it's words of a song that sound good, but Lord, that we would really mean it. That it is worth giving up everything, everything, just to know you. Lord, your word repeatedly from cover to cover says that very thing, that it's worth giving up everything to know you. To know you, Lord. As it says in Isaiah 43, to know you, to understand you, to believe that you are who you say you are. That our lives having known you, would become just loaded with purpose and strength and power as we are going to read about later. That our lives, Lord, would be vehicles by which you change the tide. The tide that is uh, rising in this country. The tide of darkness. The tide of foolishness. The tide of... Lord, that, uh, uh, that the tide of shame and fear and chaos, Lord, that, we, that everyone listening today, looking on on live stream, in the pulpits, in the churches around this city, the city of Boston, that we would be a people that would give up everything to know you, Lord, because we are told in your word and promise that as we get to know you, you grant us, give us, impart to us power the kind of power, Lord God, that overcomes nations by love, that overcomes community by kindness, by mercy, by gentleness, that, that, that slays the work of darkness, destroys the work of darkness. Lord, your word says the, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Why? Because you, as you, as we get to know you, Lord, you impart power in which we kick down the gates of hell. That's what your word says. What a glorious calling, Lord. Teach us, about us, teach us about that calling today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. Okay, so last week we saw Jesus heal a man who had a withered hand. Literally, 
a man whose arm, the life had been drained out of it is the actual words that are used. But he healed the man on the Sabbath. Moses had given the Jews the Ten Commandments about 1,500 years before Jesus. And the fourth commandment was to keep the Sabbath day holy. Six days you shall work, the seventh is the Sabbath, which means the rest. Sabbat, Shabbat means rest. In it you shall do no work, the fourth commandment says. Tragically, As has been the case throughout human history, the religious establishment took God's truth, which was made to bless man, and used it as a way to control man, so that, so much so that to heal someone on the Sabbath, they considered it work that was prohibited. So when Jesus came, Jesus came. Remember, he overturned the tables in the temple. The tables of the money changers were ripping people off. He came in at one point with a whip and forced out the people from the temple who were ripping the people off. He overturned the tables. Well, he does the same thing. He did the same thing with religious laws that were man-made. He overturned them. And he did that with many of uh, the religious traditions that were being used by man as they have been throughout all history to control men. So he healed this man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Verse 6, we didn't read it, but you can read it now with me, of chapter 3 says, Then the Pharisees went out immediately and plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. The Herodians just, you can... Put politicians, that's who they were. The Pharisees plotted with the political establishment to destroy Jesus. Always has been an unholy marriage, religion and politics, always. <laughs> and, and so they tried to destroy him. In Luke chapter 6, verse 11, it says this, they were filled with rage. So when it says in verse 7 again that he withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him. And from Judea and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, that's modern-day Jordan, and, uh, and those from Tyre and Sidon, that would be Lebanon today. Uh, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, they came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. That's how much attention that he was getting. And he was a man. He could be crushed if he didn't protect himself. He lived, he's God the Son, but as God the man, he protected himself once by 
withdrawing himself from people trying to destroy him. He lived as a man. He didn't just hang out where they were trying to destroy him, and as they came to him, they just dropped like flies. No, he lived as a man. He could have done that. But he, and he withdrew himself, but he also protected himself by, by being crushed by the mob. I shouldn't call him a mob. It was a multitude of people uh, uh, coming, to, uh, coming to him for healing, and uh, both for their souls and their bodies. Verse 10, for he healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. So notice, though powerful religious leaders were plotting with powerful political leaders to destroy Jesus, that has no effect whatsoever on the work that the Lord was doing. Uh, Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. If the media is plotting to destroy your faith, the government, judges, corporate leaders, plotting, doing everything they can to destroy your faith, uh, uh, Jesus, would, again, would later tell his disciples, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. No one wins a fight against God. <laughs> and Jesus' ministry here is expanding in spectacular fashion, even though they're very powerful forces. The Herodians, verse 6, those are the people who, who were basically, you could call them followers of the king. The king's power behind them. And the Pharisees were the powerful religious leaders. But Jesus' ministry, a move of the Holy Spirit, a move of God, you can't fight against that. And so the the multitudes were gathered to him. Let's continue on in uh, verse 11. It says, and unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out saying, you are the son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him know. Now we saw this before and we looked at this whole thing with demons acknowledging who Jesus was in chapter one, recognizing him and then calling out his name. I, I challenge all of you and I, I, I make the challenge to my own heart. to show this same verse, verse 11 of Mark chapter three, show it to someone who is not a believer in Jesus. Show them, look, there's a demon crying out to Jesus, you are the son of God. Show them that. And simply make the point that many times in the Bible, Jesus is referred to as the son of God, and even demons acknowledge that and see what that does to their soul, to their countenance. Because if he is the son of God, the implications for that person's life who you're talking to are staggering. If he's the son of God, you can't just ignore him. We we have to take it ever so seriously Everything that he says, if we acknowledge he's the son of God, then all of a sudden everything uh, that he said, we need to take really seriously. You can't just say, oh yeah, he's the son of God and not ignore 
his specific directions on your life. So a great thing to try out. I've actually never done it. But can I challenge you as I challenge myself? I, I'm going to do this in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to sh- just show someone this verse, and I'm going to say, look, even demons called him the son of God. Do you believe that he's the son of God? With that, the word of God here is powerful. It does something. It's like, whoa, demons. First time I read that, I thought it was crazy. I was 24 years old. First time I remember reading that. What in the world is this about? In verse 12, it says that um, Jesus sternly warned the demons that they should not make him known. And again, we went over this in chapter one, but he doesn't want uh, a cheerleading section of demons. He wants a cheerleading section made up of you, of you. Although a demon can tell someone about Jesus, as they do here, sort of, they can't back up their telling with lives that actually look like Jesus, but you can. More on that later. He's given you the power to do that. That's a powerful thing when you're combining a life that looks like Jesus with the words of Jesus himself. So let's continue. Mark chapter 3. Verse 13, it says, he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he himself wanted. Hmm. And they came to him. And then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. So he chooses 12. In the book of Luke, it says right before he chose the 12, it says this. This is the parallel account in Luke. Most of what we read in Mark You can also read about in Matthew. You can also read about in Luke. Each have their interesting little unique facts which add to the whole picture. But in the book of Luke, in chapter 6, it says just before Jesus chose the 12, it says this is what happened. It came to pass in those days that he went onto the mountain to pray. So Mark doesn't say that. Luke adds to it. He prays and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them, he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Apostles. So apostles were 12 men who Jesus chose to Basic, the, the, the best way to understand the apostles was the, they, they were used to be the foundation of the church. They were kind of the pillars, the foundations of, of the church. Through them, uh, the word of God was written, the New Testament, and through them, churches were established. We're all related to these guys. 
We can all trace back our lineage, spiritual lineage, to these guys. But what I want to focus on in verses 13 and 14 is what he did when he called them. What happened when he called these guys, these 12 apostles? And so this is what he did. There's really, there's five things, and I'd like you to take notes of this. If you want, you can come up and take a picture of it. What did he do? There's five things. Number one, he, he chose those that, he called to him those that he himself wanted. Now that's, that's interesting. Number two, it says he called to him those that they might be with him. There's hardly more important verse in the Bible than that one right there. Verse three, that he might send them out to preach. And that's in verse 14. Did I say verse three? Number three. That he might send them out to preach, verse 14. And then the fourth thing, that they might have power to heal sickness, verse 15. And then finally, that they might cast out demons. So I want you to be um, careful to note each of these um, if, because if you are a Christian, all these apply to you. Now you may say, well, wait, I thought he's calling apostles here. Yes, but if you study the New Testament, you will find out he's calling you to the very same things. And it's not that you're apostles. There are no more apostles. Uh, um, Once the New Testament closed, no more apostles. But he's calling you to the same thing. In fact, in the book of Luke, in chapter 10, he calls an additional 70 uh, people to himself. And and he calls them, if you study that, that chapter, he calls them, it's the same calling as this right here. Um, verse 5, if you study the chapter carefully. So please, Calvary Chapel, take special note here, first of all, that he called you to him because he wanted you. He called you to him because you are the man, the woman, the child that he himself Wanted. That, there's an extra emphasis on that note that he himself wanted. Now that's a huge problem with many people, most people. He called you because he wanted you. Ever have... Any of you ever um, grow up? Let me give you an illustration of why we struggle with this so much. Ever had someone you knew growing up when you were little, a kid? They had all the really cool toys in their backyard. But they didn't really like you a whole lot. But it didn't matter. Their toys were too tempting. And you went over to their house and you said, hey, man, do you mind if I like hang out in the backyard and use your trampoline? Oh, man, why didn't my parents have a trampoline? I had to travel if I wanted a trampoline. 
this kind of situation where you go over and, and, and come on, can I, can I go to your backyard to jump on your, listen, why don't you get your own trampoline? Well, come on, just for 50 minutes, okay. But you better not break it and don't make any noise. It's not an easy thing to do. Jump on a trampoline and make no noise. But they set a bunch of rules. And we have the same idea with God. We're so used to growing up with those conditions. He's allowing us to play in his backyard as long as we don't break the rules and we're sort of on our own. He's in the house, we're in the backyard. Couldn't be further from the truth. Verse 13 says, he called you because he wanted you. He wanted you. And he didn't call you and tell you to stay by yourself in the backyard. Number two, he called you so that you might be with him. So that you might be with him. He called you so that you could, he called you so that he could join you in his backyard. 1 Corinthians 1.9, I love this verse, says this, says God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, into that word fellowship, into relationship, into union, into um, a friendship, into, uh, yeah, that's what fellowship means, into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Can we have the uh, chart back? He called you because he wanted you that he might be with you. So somehow, Christian, somehow, somehow, Christian, you need to get over your insecurity and your man-made ideas about God and believe what the Bible says about him and you, that it is his pleasure to be with you. It's his pleasure to be with you. I've made two or three prayer journals. One of the journals I, I, I try to get in the whole, get, I, I need to, I, I try to pray each week. I, don't, I try to go through the week without, I, tr I try to never go through a week without getting through the, the whole prayer journal. And, and this is the last thing that I say. This is, this is me just writing down, and this is my last prayer to God in this prayer journal. Lord, this time is about blessing you. It's your desire I be here with you. You like me being here talking with you. The word is pleasure. It's your pleasure for me to be here. Now, I have this at the end of my prayer time because if I read it at the beginning, I would believe it with my head but not my heart. But after spending enough time in prayer, by the end, I really believe it. Virtually every time I uh, read this, I, I, again, I'm reading at the very end, I'm like, I can't believe that. 
I actually believe it. I, I, I know it to be true. It is God's pleasure to be with you. Don't leave him waiting. Is God left waiting for you every day when there's a time that you could be spending time with him in the word and, 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 and praying with understanding because you're reading the word, but you're leaving him waiting. Either when you go off to work or whenever it is uh, during your break or at night. It's his pleasure to be with you. But it is your, in addition to that, listen, it's your pleasure to be with him. Psalm 16, verse 11 says this. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, if you don't know this, if you don't know this psalm, if, if this psalm, 1611, is not reality in your life, I'm not saying this, uh, not one single bit to, to make anyone feel guilty or condemned, but if you don't, understand this, that in God's presence is the fullness of joy at your right hands are pleasures forevermore. It means you have not sought the Lord. In our 8.30 prayer this morning, one of the sisters there was crying out to God, quoting Jeremiah 29, if you, you will seek him and find him if, a, if you search with him with all your heart. It's just a fact. You will find the pleasure of God. God is your greatest pleasure and joy. But before we leave this one, can we have the, the chart again? So he called them to him, and he calls you to himself because he wants you to be with him, and so that you will be with him. Another reason, of course, is that Jesus calls you to himself because he wants you to be with him, is that he wants you to learn from him. You know, Matthew chapter 11, that very famous verse, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Learn from me because I'm gentle of heart. I am gentle. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Learn from me. Jesus is, the interesting thing about Jesus, and it's so important that we come and open up the word of God and, and, and discover that Jesus is so radically different than every other religion and philosophy in the world. He's not like some guru from Eastern religion that you learn wise sayings from and then you try to imitate. No, Jesus is with you, as he says here. And so he can actually live in and through you and live out that which he teaches you. And, and, and in that sense, you have it even better off than these 12 apostles at least until the time that Jesus was resurrected and, 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 and ascended into heaven and he gave them the Holy Spirit just as he gave you the Holy Spirit when you said, yes, Jesus, come into my life and be my king. At that point, 
you're not only learning wise sayings and a lot of other stuff from him, he's with you living those, that, that wisdom out and that knowledge out through you. He's inside of you, the Bible says. So, as soon as you ask Jesus in your life, he's forever with you in everything you do. Again, verse 14, Jesus appointed the 12 that they might be with him. He was with them from this point on. He was with them in the boat, in the storm, and, and they saw how he responded when the waves were overtaking the boat. Jesus was with these men when they were with 5,000 people and saw how Jesus responded when they had nothing to eat. Jesus was with them when his enemies came to him time after time trying to trick him, and he, they saw how he responded. Uh, Jesus was with them when they were going to Jerusalem, and a Samaritan village did not want to receive him, so so his disciples asked Jesus if they could call down fire and destroy the village. They saw and heard how Jesus responded to them, how he said to them in Luke 9, 56, you do not know the manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He was, they were with him. Again, the verse says there in verse 14 of Mark Three, he called them to be with him, to be with him. So as you live your life with Jesus and call him into all your circumstances and you read God's word by his life and words, he will teach you and you're, uh, teach you and your life will become a witness, a signpost that points to Jesus. Your, your life will become a witness. Last thing Jesus said um, before he ascended into heaven, you will become witnesses. That, what he's talking about is a signpost that points to him, to all the world, he said. So, number three. Let's, it says, first, number one, that he might himself uh, wanted. He called to him. He called you to himself so that because he wanted you to himself, number two, that you might be with him. And the third thing is that he might send you out to preach. That's what it says. Calvary Chapel, the Lord calls you so that you will preach. By your life and your words, you will be a sermon. You'll be a message. It's not talking here supremely about standing in a pulpit or sitting on a street corner. He doesn't call you to be with him and then remain silent. Have your life and your words remain silent. He calls you to preach we live in an almost inconceivably dark world 
where government, media, schools are trying to raise a generation of children without God. God, who can be, and as we've said, wants to be our children's greatest pleasure and joy. We have all these incredibly powerful forces, at least they look that way to us, trying to make sure the children are raised without God. God, of whom it is said in Colossians 1.16, that by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And we have a world that's trying to raise the kids without him. Their one sense, their one source of joy and purpose and power, they want to darken. They just want to shroud their lives in darkness. Parents, join us Tuesday nights as we're studying how to pour the life of God into our, our, our children because supremely we're the ones who are responsible for doing that. Jesus has called you parents and anyone which should be all of you who has influence over children to preach the gospel, to preach him. That's number three on our list. But it does not stop with your children, it's your coworkers, it's your families, it's your neighbors, it's strangers that God does a big setup with you where you know you have to speak up and say something about God. Next, verse 15, number four. He called them to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. He called them to have power to heal sickness, and that's number four there. I like the verse in Titus. The verse in Titus says this, Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Now, back to the chart, number four, it says here that they might have power to heal sickness. You are called to pray for the healing of the sick, every one of you. Now, there was a unique power going on at this time because of Jesus' presence, and so there may be many times where you may put your hands on someone or pray for someone for healing, and they're not healed. However, the point of number four here is, and the point of the, of the verse in Titus is that you have been called to good works. Can we go back to Titus chapter two? It says, He's, he gave himself for you that he might redeem you from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Now, 
if you do an honest, thorough study of the history of public schools, meaning schools available to all, of hospitals, of orphanages, it's practically, practically like reading about the history of Christianity. Uh, the, and and it's, it, it's interesting, you go onto Wikipedia, they're so desperately trying to find a ho- record of a hospital um, somewhere in the world. It's, it's, it's almost humorous reading it outside of Christianity, while at the same time they're having to concede there was literally an explosion of churches after Jesus released these guys to be a witness, a signpost to him to all the world. You have been called to be a people zealous for good works. I remember when uh, our church has probably by now been on over 100 missions trips over the past 18 years. Uh, When you include just every time someone or a group was sent and the first was Katrina. Katrina, I um, can't remember that year where that was, but it was right after the church started. Was that 2003? I can't remember when Katrina was, but we sent three teams down there. And, and, and not that there was no one else doing stuff down there, but through no questioning on my part, people would come back and they would say, the only people we saw were Christians. These, there were these tent cities there who were rebuilding houses. Katrina, was, I guess it's something that's that long ago, 18 years ago, I should remind you, it just came through the Louisiana, the Mississippi, and the southern Alabama area and just destroyed everything in its path. And so just tens of thousands of houses destroyed. And, and, and there were these tent cities of just Christians. And, and they, they would come back and, 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 and they would say, I didn't see anyone else down there. Doesn't mean that there were not other people doing stuff. I'm sure there were. But what it was, it was, it was Mark chapter three in action. Christians have been called, as it says in the, uh, in the chart, it says to heal the sick, meaning you go to where there's need and you live out the life of Christ, the last one, that they might cast out demons. Now, uh, I wasn't involved with a casting out demons situation until a few years ago in Haiti. A couple of uh, others in our church were actually involved in an exorcism or two in Brazil when we were there in the, um, in the flavelas. Most Christians are not going to be involved in an exorcism. As we discussed previously, there was a tremendous amount of demonic activity at the time Jesus came because the demonic world knew he was there, and so they began manifesting as never before. But the, the, but the point that is being made here is that Jesus is, is calling them because he wants them be, that, they, that, they could, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and that they would have, might um, have power to heal sickness. But finally, this is like a, a, a declaration of war against the devil. He's saying that they might cast out demons. In other words, he's sending you out into darkness and that the world is repeatedly referred to in the Bible as the kingdom of darkness. Jesus calls himself 
the light of the world and then turns right around in the book of Matthew and calls you the light of the world for you to go out and be the light and to cast out darkness. Love this um, verse from John chapter um, uh, 3, verse, in John chapter 3, uh, I think it's verse 8, where, it's, where it says this. It says the, that the, Jesus came and manifest himself in order to destroy the works of the devil. I think that's John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, where it says that. And so um, I, want to, uh, I want to just conclude by, by, by saying this. Notice what's not in here, Calvary Chapel. Notice what's not in here, in this list. It doesn't say, it doesn't have number six there, partner with political leaders who will establish God's government on earth. It doesn't say that. I don't know when Christian leaders in this country are going to learn that Jesus never said that. I don't know when they're going to learn to stop using politics to bring about change supremely. When they do that, they lose their witness. In other words, they will not be a signpost to Jesus. They will be a signpost to the mess we saw in Washington, D.C. You want to know what Jesus is about? It's about that big mess. That's what their life will be expressing. They won't be declaring the gospel. And in my opinion, there are a lot of Christian leaders today who need to do a lot of explaining for their blind enthusiasm and adoration of a political leader. Repentance. Our enthusiasm and adoration is reserved for one person and one person alone. Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying Christians shouldn't vote. I'm not saying Christians shouldn't become politicians. I'm saying this. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world don't mix. They are opposed to each other. And so as, as Christians, we have been called into the kingdom of God. And, and, and when you have arrived there in the kingdom of God, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that you must handle that kingdom really, really carefully with great caution. You know, I was thinking as I, I, as I was preparing the sermon, how many thousands of political leaders throughout history who were household names, we're talking tens of thousands of men and women who were household names that have been lost completely to history. We don't even know about them. History knows nothing more about them. And they were the most, at one time, the most powerful people in the world. We don't know about them anymore. But what we do know about today are the names of 12 men, 12 apostles, who Jesus called because he wanted, and he gave them power to 
preach, power to heal sickness, and to cast out demons, to, to go against the kingdom of darkness. These guys, most scholars, there's 12 of them, most scholars think they didn't even know how to read. But God doesn't need someone who knows how to read in order to change the world. All he needs is someone who surrenders their life, recognizing who Jesus is, that he's the son of God, who God sent to the world because the world was on its way to everlasting destruction because their lives are on the way to a deserved eternal punishment. But he came to the world to live a perfect life in order to credit it to their account. Do you realize that Jesus, he was tempted in every single way, just like you are, but yet without sin. And he lived that life of great suffering and temptation in order to credit that perfection to you so you could be with him as we've been talking about. Because God does not join himself to an imperfect person, but only a, a person who has got, received the righteousness, the goodness, the life of Christ. A person who believes that the penalty for their, for their sin is death and hell. But Jesus paid that death and hell for them on the cross. A, a person who um, believes that um, um, Jesus died, but after three days, he was resurrected from the dead and raised unto life and ascended into heaven and is now willing to give them life. If you believe those things, if you say, yes, Jesus, I believe that, come in. He comes in to be with you and to an impart power to you to go out and live the gospel, to preach the gospel, to, to, to heal the sick, and to go headlong into a world that's filled with darkness and change it. That's the, that's the power that God imparts. Oh, how earthly power is so intoxicating. It's time that we repent. What we saw last week got, is a message from God, that big old mess in the capital where God's speaking to us. He's speaking to the church. Yeah, the media's talking about it. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. He's saying, you want to go that way? You want to be like the Pharisees and join yourself to the Herodians? Mark chapter 3, 1, 6 that's what you get, a big mess. But if you want power, if you want change, if you want a changed world, can we get the chart one more time? This is what, this is how, this is how you go about changing the world. Being with Jesus, number two. Understanding that he wanted you in the first place. Preaching with your life and your words running after good works. The Bible says you were created by God as a poem of good works. If you don't believe me, read it. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. You have to go into the Greek with some, some of that, but that's what it says. Your life's a poem 
filled with good works that God prepared beforehand. And then finally, he, he, he he has called you to himself to give you power to change the world of darkness. So I'm gonna ask the worship team to to come up at this time. I just want all this to settle in. And just ask the Lord for all this to settle in. Again, that, that, that worship song that we began with this morning, oh God, I wanna give up everything just to know you. Just to know you. And that's not talking about knowing facts. That's talking about what we just read about in Mark chapter 3. That's knowing God because he is with you in the person of his son by the Holy Spirit. As we know the Lord, as we get to know him more and more, as we preach about him through our words and lives. The kingdom of the world, the kingdom of darkness is defeated. I have a long record the last 2,000 years of seeing this. We want to be those people you could rise now if you're on live stream if you could stand up at this time I want everyone watching to stand up at this time let's just close with a worship song we are going to be in prayer on live stream rather on zoom after the service the password is mark three The password is Mark 3. I don't know about you, but I've... As I reflect and really seek the Lord, including in this message, I'm really driven to want to pray. So if you can get into one of those Zoom meetings, it's it's on our website. Just um, click on it, or if you got the church email, it's... Mark 3. Let's close with a worship song. I'm going to briefly pray and hand it off to the worship team. Father, I just thank you in Jesus' name. For letting us know, for letting me know that you called us, you called each man and woman in this room because you wanted them. There may be someone in this room, there may be multiple people watching or in this room who've never responded to you even though you want them. It says here in Mark chapter three, this is your word, Lord Jesus. Verse 13, you've called us to yourself because you want us. What a glorious thought would you, Lord, by your grace destroy our insecurities and our low man-made ideas about you and us and fill us with that that glorious truth you've called us because you want us 
You want to save us from a judgment that we otherwise deserve, but you also want to send us forth even as we're with you when we're going to live a life reproducing life Lord where life is being reproduced in others around us because of our life oh Father that we would know you Give us the grace, Lord, to let go of everything else just to know you. I pray this in Jesus' name.